Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this morning. Uh, It's great to see you. We uh, are in the midst of our series in the Psalms, which is called An Anatomy of the Soul, which is a name that we borrowed from John Calvin describing the Psalms as a look into every aspect of our soul, all of the different dimensions and different experiences that we can have as people. And what's interesting as we look into the Psalms is it breaks apart, sort of teases apart, this dichotomy that we have in our culture in terms of how we relate to our emotions. So we have one side of our culture that says your emotions are the core of who you are. That is the seat of your identity. So getting in touch with your emotions is how you truly know yourself. Follow your passions, follow your emotions. That's, who, that's how you become who you truly are. The other side of that coin is a side that says your emotions are pretty much irrelevant to who you are. It's adopting a sort of stoic approach to your emotions where it doesn't really matter what you're feeling, it matters what you're thinking. And therefore, your identity is totally disconnected from your emotional state. The Psalms, however, offer a a more holistic approach, something that doesn't demonize one one aspect of our humanity and then dignify another aspect of our humanity. Rather, it brings them both together into a wholeness. We have deep emotions that mean things, and we have deep reason that informs those emotions. And understanding those things together allows us to live as wholehearted people, deeply engaged with our lives in the way that God calls us to be. This Sunday, the sermon is entitled Spiritual Depression. And I'm taking that title from a book that was written in the 60s by a a British minister named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Has anybody heard of him? Nice. Three. This is going to go well. Um, His 
so he wrote this book entitled Spiritual Depression that was addressing the issue that the book names, that he called spiritual depression. And the book starts off as an analysis of this psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 42. He, he says that this psalm is a look into a sort of diagnosis and description of spiritual depression. So we're going to see what exactly we mean by that term. Uh, but before we get too technical with that word, spiritual depression, you probably know what I mean. It probably means about what you think it does. A sense of God's absence. A sense of a meaninglessness. A sense of purposelessness. Uh, that oftentimes creeps into our lives. Spiritual depression is not very different from just depression. Uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. What's unique about this psalm's approach to spiritual depression is uh, I think we typically think of depression and, as it, and of instruction about depression as falling into two categories, either how to get out of a season of spiritual depression, so I'm in a season of spiritual depression, how do I climb out of it, or how to avoid spiritual depression. I'm in a season of spiritual depression, how do I make sure I don't, or I'm not in that sort of season, how do I make sure I don't get into that? But I don't think that either of those categories are what this psalm is describing. It presents a third category, which is how can you be spiritually depressed well? That's a new sort of category. How can you be spiritually depressed? How do you pass through a season of spiritual depression well? Is there such a thing? Is that possible? I think in the psalm we see an exemplar of someone who is passing through spiritual depression well. And the reason I think that we need to have that sort of a category and we need to develop that category further is because if the Bible is in any way proportional to our lives and the way that it presents things, we see that uh, it's littered with people in seasons of depression. From Job, which is an entire book about that, to David's Psalms, uh, to Lamentations, to uh, Jesus himself is called the man of sorrows. We see people littered in this state of real deep depression. And it, it seems as though that sort of, those sort of seasons are inevitable, which means we need to have an approach to those seasons that allows us to move through them well. And that's what we're seeing today. Spurgeon, talking about the inevitability of these seasons, he says this, he says, fits of depression come over most of us. <clears throat> Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, the joyous not always happy. Those categories are really important for the way that we approach spiritual depression. So, what we're going to look at then are, is first of all the aspects of spiritual depression as we see in Psalm 42, sort of the aspects, and that acts as a description of spiritual depression. Next, we're going to see the turmoil of spiritual depression. The psalmist is in a particular state of turmoil, and we're going to look and see what that is. And finally, we're going to see the hope of spiritual depression. How can you have hope in the midst of those sorts of seasons of life? So, 
first of all, the aspects of spiritual depression. In this psalm, as it begins, and I'll go ahead and read uh, the first several verses, the first four verses to us so we can have it in mind. Uh, I'll start there. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. This first part of this psalm, the beginning of verse 4, he describes as him pouring out his soul. We're getting to see right into the psalmist in real time what is happening in his soul. He is pouring himself out. And so when we look at this, we, we need to be able to see through what is, what is happening in his heart. How can we relate to and understand what is happening in his heart? And we'll see that it, he, de, he describes it in that passage in three categories. He's feeling the spiritual depression spiritually, which is like, great, thanks. Thanks for the good preaching. <laughs> He's feeling his spiritual depression spiritually, physically, and socially. So that's what we're going to look at. First of all, feeling a spiritual depression spiritually. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. If you Google image search that verse, which you've probably heard before, it's a bunch of coffee mugs of deer, like by these calm streams, drinking water. But that doesn't make any sense because what should be on the coffee mug is like a deer by just like a, a totally dry stream and looking up and being like, what? The, I, there's no water here. And there would be a thought bubble that said that for the deer. That would be the coffee mug that should be there because what we see it isn't, it a, it, like it's sort of a beautiful and poetic image, but it's, it's, it's not beautiful. Uh, as a deer pants for water, so pants my soul for you. This is a, I'm going to die soon if I don't get water. I've run to the stream that I normally get water from and there's nothing there. And now I'm running around looking for water, panting, and there's still nothing. That's the type of longing that he's using to describe his longing for God. It's, it's of an animal longing for something as fundamental as water. This is a deep need that is not going satiated right now. And it feels like he's headed towards death. That's what we see. The deer is returning to where it would typically get water, and there's nothing there. This is the Christian returning to the scriptures that at at certain points in her life had filled her with joy and with a sense of God's closeness, and now nothing. This is an understanding or or a real feeling of a a total absence of God from the streams that normally provided now a feeling of nothing. This is something that you will experience as a Christian. And typically the questions that you begin to ask when you do are, so what sin did I do to cause this? Or what spiritual disciplines am I not moving in 
that caused me to feel this sense of distance, this sense of spiritual depression. But as we look through this psalm, he's not dealing with any sin. He's not dealing with a lack of discipline. He's not dealing with a lack of seeking of God in his life. And so that needs to be a caution for us. When we approach people who are in these seasons of spiritual depression, typically our response is, well, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you doing these things? And they may be we don't see a lack of that as causative. We have an understanding of our Christianity that often looks like if I'm doing everything right, then nothing will be going wrong. And that's not true. We see someone who isn't struggling with uh, an, apparent, an apparent depth of sin. We see someone who isn't uh, struggling with a lack of discipline in their lives, and yet they're still experiencing this deep season of spiritual depression? Do you have that category? This psalm forces us into that. Now, I'm going to take an aside from that point uh, and go off book a little bit because that's such an important point to make uh, with regards to even amidst not dealing with a particular sin or not dealing with a particular lack of discipline, you can experience this sort of depression. That's an important point to make. Because if we don't see that in the text, then we'll be approaching our Christianity as though it is just a list of to-dos that I can check off in order to get myself in order. And that's not what the story of the Bible is. The story of the Bible is fundamentally, you can't do that, therefore Jesus saved you. You were the type of thing, not that needed guidance, you were the type of thing that needed saving, salvation, rescue. So if we approach our Christianity in that way, we need to correct that way of thinking. But I will say this. I don't know, I think we do have a real issue with people aren't feeling any sort of spiritual thirst because we haven't even really had our palates wet yet. We do a study here called the Gotham Fellowship, which is a name that makes you feel like you really need to describe it, because what does that mean? But um, it's a small group study, and over this last week, several people sat down and they're like, you know, I just feel like I really need to be reading my Bible more. Like I've just felt like I've needed to really start reading the Bible more. And I think the reason that was happening in people was because they've begun to have their palate wet. They had that first sip that unveiled just how thirsty they really were. And so I think that oftentimes we miss that. We miss even that first sip of Scripture that reveals just how thirsty you really are. So what I'm saying here, <laughs> read your Bible. <laughs> That's that point. So, spiritual. Spiritual need. Next up, we see a physical need described in the psalm. There's a physical aspect of the psalmist's depression. In, psalm, in verse 3, it says, My tears have been my food day and night, 
while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So what we see is tears have been his food. So that means that he's not eating. The psalmist isn't eating. And we see that uh, tears have been his food day and night, which means the psalmist isn't sleeping. The writer of this isn't eating and they aren't sleeping. There is a physical component that's either, and it's probably both, a manifestation and a cause of this depression that the uh, psalmist is experiencing. So, this is spiritual depression. This is the question that I hope some of you are asking. This is spiritual depression. Why are we talking about these physical things? Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, that uh, uh, preacher that I referenced in the beginning, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, this will matter for three of you, uh, he uh, was the one that sort of, uh, he really dives into this physical aspect of the depression because he used to be a doctor. He says, uh, on the link between our physicality and our spiritual depression, he says this, and there are many, I find, who come to talk to me about these matters, in whose case it seems quite clear to me that the cause of the trouble is mainly, that's a big word for a preacher to use, because this is kind of out of our wheelhouse, is mainly physical. Into this group, speaking generally, you can put tiredness, overstrain, illness, it, any form of illness. You cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical, for we are body, mind, and spirit. We don't typically approach our faith that way. And there's a reason that we don't. It's because we've all been sort of taken up in and very influenced by, uh, uh, we're, we, many of us, pretty much, yeah, many of us are uh, grew up in American Christianity. And that means we grew up in a Christianity that is very influenced by Western philosophical, the Western philosophical tradition. And we don't realize how deeply influenced by that we are, but we are very deeply influenced by that. And there's an aspect of the Western philosophical tradition called dualism. And what that means is we view the mind and the body as inherently disconnected, inherently separate. So remember Descartes, I think, therefore I am? Have I told my Descartes joke before? So Descartes walks into a bar, and the bartender says, would you like a drink? And Descartes says, I think not, and then vanishes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good joke. Um, so I think, therefore I am. That means that the seat of our identity is in the intellect, and our mind is ultimately what controls and what matters. But our bodies are ultimately, it, they, they ultimately don't matter. They shouldn't have any real impact on our experience as human beings. The Bible doesn't talk like that. The Bible isn't dualist, it's holistic. It has a view of us as equally spiritual and physical and intellectual. 
And when we treat ourselves as reducing ourselves to one aspect or the other, a pure naturalism that says all of your problems are only chemical, they're only physical, reduces your humanity. But a pure spiritual, spiritualism does the same thing, which says your physicality doesn't matter, your body doesn't matter, your physical needs don't matter, does the same sort of reductionism. And this plays out in so many different ways throughout our faith, in which we reject the material for the sake of the spiritual. Whereas there's, the Bible speaks with a holism, it takes such a holistic perspective, it doesn't allow us to reduce. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, continuing on this thought, he's able to instruct with such a balance that's typically missing from our culture. Listen to this. He says, we must be careful on all sides in drawing this distinction because if you give way to your physical condition, you become guilty in a spiritual sense. So if you give way to your physical condition and say, listen, this is just how I am. It's mere physicality. What can I do? I'm only human. Then you're guilty in a spiritual sense. You're not taking responsibility where you ought. Yet if you recognize, however, that the physical may be partly responsible for your spiritual condition and make allowances for that, you will be better able to deal with the spiritual. So are you approaching yourself holistically? Do you have these, this category? Or are you dividing yourself? In what ways is your spirituality divided from your physicality? Oftentimes, it, that manifests itself in all sorts of ways where we don't think the physical actually matters. We don't think the material actually matters. One more example is this is typically why people don't think their work is actually meaningful because their work belongs in this material, physical realm which must not matter, whereas their spirituality belongs in this religious, spiritual, intellectual realm, and that's what really matters. That's not the way the Bible talks. That's just being a Western person. So we need to be able to tease those apart to understand clearly what the Bible is saying. Finally, so we have a spiritual, a physical, and finally we have a social component. In verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So what we see happen to the psalmist is he moves into this sort of nostalgia of a time where he used to move with the multitude. He remembers a worship service where they would move into the house of the Lord and they would sing together. And he used to go with them. He used to even lead them. And he would be a part of this community of believers and now he is lonely. He's isolated. He remembers it nostalgically, and it elicits really just a longing and a pain. So what do we see there? We see that a lack of community can be contributing to this spiritual depression. So a sense of community in Denver is really, it's, it's like a moving target. I know firsthand from conversations I've had in this past week 
with several of you that uh, this lack of community is a real source of the spiritual distance that you're experiencing. So, at L2, well, I'll go back. At Denver, community is really a moving target. A lot of, a lot of people just got here. Raise your hand if you've been in Denver for under three years. You guys should all introduce yourselves to each other. Uh, raise your hand if you plan on moving out of Denver within the next two years. Yeah, a couple. Just expose yourselves. Lisa? <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> we got to talk. Um, there's, uh, uh, but as you can see, community in Denver is really a moving target. It's something that needs, it's people moving in and out of life stages, people moving in and out of phases. And so in order to establish community, you need to be constantly engaging with it, putting in the effort to be, to getting to know people and getting known by people. Uh, at L2, our, our mission, we describe like this. We say, we want you to be equipped to know your Bible, to be equipped to know yourself, and to know your mission. So that middle one, knowing yourself, this is where community comes in. You can't know yourself in a vacuum. You can't know yourself outside of the context of community. You need people that are able to point out things, blind spots that you have that you can't see. And you need to be able to point out those blind spots in others. Then community develops. That's how we discover what our worldview actually is. It's how we discover our limits and our boundaries, because we posit ideas and we realize, because we're in community, some of them are wrong. And we start to gain a better picture of reality, a better picture of ourselves, but none of that can happen in a vacuum. What I want us to see in this text is that his desire for community is not an example of his weakness. Typically, we think, if I grow enough as a Christian, if I'm established enough as a Christian, then I will be able to do this alone. I'll have enough wisdom, I'll have enough knowledge in myself to be able to just move through this alone. But that's not true. That's a neglect of your limits as a human. It's prideful, it's egotistical, you're pretending to be something more like God than being like a human, which is what you are. You have limits. You can't see everything. You require a community even to know yourself. You can't introspect your way to an accurate picture of who you are, which means if you aren't moving in community, we will be unable to accomplish our goal as a church in helping you know yourselves, and you will be unable to move well in your mission in the city. Our growth will be stunted. So community is extremely important. It's not something that you grow out of. It's not an aspect of, he's not, this, he isn't describing his own personal weakness here. He's describing a reality of his humanity. We either live according to the reality or we keep butting heads against the falsehood, the false worldview that we are in. So we see three aspects of a spiritual depression. We see the spiritual, the physical, and the social. 
Now, next, we turn to the turmoil of spiritual depression. In verses 8 through 10, he says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This section of the text from my first reading was the most strange. And and if you didn't hear it, I'll I'll point it out. It says, this is where he starts. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God commands his steadfast love. He has this understanding that God is commanding his love into the world. God is ultimately in control of the world and guiding it by his steadfast love. And he's sending him this song in the night. This is the background presuppositions of this individual's life, this, uh, this psalmist's life. And then he says, so I pray to this God, and what does he pray? He prays, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He says these glorious, amazing things that act as the background convictions to his prayer. And then his prayer is, why have you forgotten me? How can both of those things be right next to each other in a sentence? It's too strange. This is another one of those moments where we need some sort of a new category. So, here's what we see. The turmoil that the psalmist is experiencing is not despite his convictions about God's love, it's because of his convictions about God's love. The turmoil is because of his convictions. He sees God's love, and this is forcing a sort of inner turmoil in his heart. And I want to see that that turmoil is a necessary component of us being spiritually depressed well. This isn't about alleviating turmoil. This is about having the right turmoil. So Derek Kidner is a commentator who I'm learning I need to read last after I've read other people and done other study because he's so good that whenever I read him, I'm just like, oh yeah, that's it. I'll just go with that. So he writes about this. It is an important dialogue between the two aspects of the believer who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. He is called to live in eternity. His mind stayed on God, but also in time where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. We are caught in a tension that forces this sort of discontinuity. He knows and he has these convictions about God, about God's steadfast love towards him, and yet in his experience, he's feeling this deep sort of absence and he's experiencing this loneliness and this this, uh, lowliness physically. And yet, he is, so that creates now this war in his mind, this turmoil in his mind between these convictions that he has about God and how he is knowing God experientially. As humans, we crave 
coherence. And we will do almost anything to resolve a tension like this, a turmoil like this in our own hearts. So what that means is we're faced with an opportunity where when, we, when God feels experientially absent and we have this conviction that God is commanding his steadfast love towards us, we can resolve that turmoil by turning on one of those premises. And what typically happens is we say, look at the world. Obviously, God isn't controlling it with his steadfast love. And we resolve the turmoil by rejecting God. The psalmist, on the other hand, makes the exact opposite turn. He sees these two premises that seem to be canceling each other out, and instead of rejecting his conviction that God is operating with love in the world, he turns instead and he questions himself. He turns his questioning towards his own convictions. This is so important because if we seek to just resolve the turmoil and get rid of that feeling of discontinuity, what we're really doing is rejecting our possibility to hope, to experience real hope. So that's what we're turning to finally, the hope of spiritual depression. Psalm 42.11 is an example of the stanza that repeats itself throughout this psalm. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He turns his questioning inward. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's able to maintain this conviction because he knows how to question rightly. He's able to speak to himself. That's a rare quality. Even to doubt himself. He says, Martin Lloyd-Jones writing on this, he says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? We wake up with thoughts that are immediately tormenting us, a feeling of distance that immediately torments us. And instead of saying, why are you thinking like that? Why are you cast down? Why are you feeling like God is so absent? Hope in grabbing yourself. Hope in God. You will again praise him, your salvation and your God. That's not saying, the psalmist, when he says that, he isn't praising God right then. He's establishing a proper hope. And hope gets uh, hope is the best PR team because we use that word really, like, buoyantly. But hope hurts. Hope is vulnerable and exposing. Hope can make you look like a fool because you don't know how things will turn out. You don't know how... The more you hope, the more risk you are putting in your life to be really let down. So it matters what your hope is in. So how do you talk to yourself? 
How do we develop a conviction that allows us to hope amidst this turmoil? What good reason do we have to preach to ourselves, to provide ourselves in the midst of this spiritual depression that can allow us to hope? The distant God that feels so absent in Jesus we see become a man to develop a sort of closeness. We see him thirst. We see him long for God. Jesus we see actually abandoned by God. Not just feel like it, but on the cross be actually abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? It's so that we might be brought in. It's so that we might know, even in the midst of our deepest feelings of spiritual depression, that Christ has secured us so that we can't be cast out from his presence. That provides a bedrock for our turmoil. The gospel is this message that can act as this baseline conviction that we need to return to over and over again, not to relieve the turmoil of how we're feeling in the world, but to at least explain it better. To provide a category of how could good come from so much suffering, look at Jesus. In that we see God commanding his love in the world, his love towards his church, by incredible suffering, by incredible depths, of depression. So know that Jesus' example of spiritual depression is not merely an example to be followed, but it's also the very thing that saves you, the very thing that we can hope in. So with that, uh, let's take some questions. How can I discern whether my circumstances are a result of my spiritual negligence versus a result of a season God is causing me to endure for a purpose not necessarily correlated with my behavior. I think that you can almost always search yourself and find some element of spiritual negligence. Which which means that uh, making the distinction isn't, I think, what's necessarily important because the treatment would be the same either way. Speak to yourself, question yourself, preach to yourself, repent of what you think you see, and then turn back towards God with this same understanding of the gospel that allows you to know that when you sin, you can turn towards him rather than away from him. So the difference, I don't think, the difference in application, I don't think would be very great. Uh... uh, It's not that we need to be constantly in the dark about ourselves. Community can expose this. If there's real sin that's taking place in your life, then community can really help expose that. And you wandering around your own mind, defending yourself, and then accusing yourself, like, you're probably not going to piece it together there. So, community can be very helpful, uh, but press back into the Word. See what's revealed there. Spend time in prayer with God expectantly that you might hear from him. Next question. 
So it sounds like Jesus experienced spiritual depression when he was on the cross and cried out to God, asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or was he just quoting David in Psalm 22, or both? Uh, both. Thank you for saying both. <laughs> but yeah, it's absolutely both. I mean, he's experiencing an incredible depth of spiritual depression, like this term we can use on the cross. It, it is huge. It is extremely deep. I mean, more than, than any of us could possibly be able to grasp what he's experiencing. And he is using Psalm 22 to bring a voice to the reality of his experience. We can use the Psalms in the same way. What a gift. Psalm 42, it, it articulates so well what so many of you are experiencing. And it's, it's shown and validated as truthful in the scriptures. You can use that now. When it, it, Paul talks about uh, knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, when you're depressed, does it ever occur to you, Jesus felt like this? Jesus felt like this on my behalf that I might be saved. When I suffer like this, I'm growing in a depth of his love towards me. What a grace. So, next question. Can my soul be rightly seeking God while my mind and body is seeking to just veg out? I will answer your question with another question. Uh, can you be rightly seeking God while just vegging out? Like, why are those pitted against each other? It seems unnecessary. Jesus took a nap in the middle of the day. Do you not have, was that like fake Jesus who was taking a nap? Like, those are the things that we, I just hear a dualism at work in that question. And we need to pull those things apart from our spiritual lives and our physical lives. Discern yourself more holistically, which I think is more biblically. All right, that was the third question. So we're about to take communion. Uh, when we come down, this is us showing our community with each other our relationship, our direct relationship with Jesus as we see his blood poured out and his body broken. Preach that to yourself in the midst of the depression that you may be in, that you might be in that depression well. You have a unique opportunity to glorify God in the midst of it, a unique opportunity to, to make your joy something that's not so fleeting, but something that's really bedrocked in the fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would show us just new categories, how your scripture blows apart the way that we typically approach things. Show us ways to be depressed well in a way that glorifies you. Not that we might be depressed forever, Lord, and I pray that for those that are right now that you would set them free. Father, that those that are and are seeking ways to explain it, 
that they might learn to develop a trust in you that is trusting you for you, for the love that you have demonstrated to us and trusting in that. Lord, that we might hope in you, our salvation and our God. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.